the intermediate to long-term question. Like this is an opportunity for a new beginning and a new awareness of health is not wealth. It's, it's everything. You know, if you, if you don't have your health, you have nothing. Welcome back to The Better Podcast with yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for high-performing women who want better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families, and want to hear from a woman that can take the complex science and make it easy to integrate into everyday life. Every week, I'll be giving you access to world-class scientists, medical doctors, plastic surgeons, professional athletes, Olympic gold medalists, Hollywood actors, parenting coaches, sex experts, and psychologists. I am always looking to answer this question. What are the simplest things that we can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and it is my mission to be the voice for women. Let's get better together. Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am, of course, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Today we are talking about the coronavirus and I sat down with one of my colleagues, Dr. Tom Moorcroft. He is a board certified family physician in family medicine and has been working in chronic bacterial and viral infections for over 12 years. His specialty is in Lyme disease and in working in the pediatric realm with children with pandas. And I sat down with him today to discuss some of the novel treatments around corona, what we are seeing from the emerging literature, both from the allopathic sense, so traditional medicines, as well as the complementary and alternative medicines in terms of supplementation and in terms of some emerging evidence from the literature in China around traditional Chinese herbs. Now, we had a wonderful, fulsome conversation around the mechanism of action with the coronavirus, some new updated information for you that he lays out really well. And then we get into a conversation around some of the things that I have been maybe hammering home uh, a little bit um, aggressively as of late, but talking about the idea, of course, of the germ. So understanding the germ, but also understanding its interaction with the host. And that would be you, that would be the population. So can we understand how the germ works? Absolutely. And we talk about that today. And can we also understand how we can make ourselves the most strongest versions of ourselves. In other words, making ourselves an inhabitable host for the virus. Or if the virus does, uh, if we do come in contact with the virus and we, be, and we fall ill, that we can have the most resilience, both in terms of cellular and mental grit. So we talk about that. We talk about some of the things around sleep. We talk about movement. We talk about basic foundational health. And then we get into, as I mentioned, some of the medicines, the antimalarials that are sounding promising. We get into some supplementation like ascorbic acid and melatonin and looking at the efficacy there and really discussing the problems that we have seen globally. So what were the failings of countries like China and uh, Italy. And in my opinion now, I think we can group the United States into that. And where did other countries like South Korea and Taiwan really shine and what did they do right? So we had a wonderful, fulsome discussion with this. I will have the show notes. I'm preparing the show notes as quickly as I can. Again, there are some parts of this conversation that are 
technically dense, uh, so dense in fact that uh, two doctors uh, uh, opted to not pronounce some of the drugs that were coming out. And this is um, this is one of my secrets that I'm letting out. Sometimes I read the names of drugs and I can never pronounce them right. So we both opted out from um, from pronouncing some of these uh, from some of these drugs that are coming out. And you'll I hope that you find that as amusing as as I did. So I will have all this information in the show notes. Of course, if you want access to the show notes, uh, www.bettershow.co forward slash show notes, S-H-O-W-N-O-T-E-S. And that is really the notes that I have prepared for the conversation that we had with Dr. Tom today, um, the studies that we are referencing and basically, it's like my virtual prescription pad in terms of what we're talking about, in terms of immune boosting, supplementation, and, and all of that. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Tom Moorcroft. Tom, welcome to the show, and thank you for coming on such short notice. Oh, no worries. Thanks for having me. I mean, it's such an important thing, so I'm glad we were able to jump on and, and do this quick. Yeah, we were chatting over Facebook Messenger yesterday, and we were trying to figure out if we were going to do this yesterday or today. So I'm I'm really happy that uh, that we were able to do this. Yeah, and me uh, too. you may it's it's Saturday, so this is the the, the the this is being recorded as Saturday. My kids are home, so you may hear some things in the background. So we'll try to. Yeah, uh, well, that's a good thing. I mean, my my daughter's home, and everybody else is home, and that's as people you know, as we all have heard, it's probably the best thing to be doing right now. Yeah, man, hundred percent, hundred percent. So I wanted to get you on because I know that your focus clinically has been on bacteria and viruses for the past you know, 12 years of your practice. And I wanted to, and we've done a couple of special episodes in the past around you know, what the coronavirus is, how it gains access, but I wanted potentially y- your description. First, let's talk about maybe some of the common symptoms that we can, if you are infected with COVID-19, which is the disease, right? So SARS-CoV-2 right. is the virus, and then COVID-19 is, is what we're classifying as the disease. And I, the reason why I say that is because I see people interchanging the two, you know, and we see, you know, like HIV and AIDS, right? HIV is the right. virus, AIDS is the disease. So uh, just making that uh, clinical distinction. So let, let's talk about some of the common symptoms and, and maybe in your words, explain how this is affecting the body. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's so important to make that distinction too. And it's like, I'm always trying to simplify it when I'm talking and writing, but it, it is really, you know, I, I think that's a great place to start is the disease is that COVID-19 and, and the separation is critical. So with the, when, when you do get exposed to uh, the novel coronavirus, the SARS-CoV-2, and you develop symptoms of that COVID-19, the big things that everyone I think has heard about are fever, a dry cough, and then shortness of breath. And I've seen a whole bunch of these little things go around online, like if you checklist, like if you have this, you have influenza, if you have this, you have a cold, if you have this, you have COVID-19, and they're not all that accurate, really. I mean, what we've seen is from our colleagues who have seen a lot, like in Washington State, California, and now coming out of Boston and New York, is that those are the, the key symptoms, but um, usually what's happening is we're seeing that people do actually have a prodrome, or at least in several cases, meaning they have symptoms that occur before sort of the onset of the more severe illness. So you might feel malaise, you know, so you're just kind of off and not feeling yourself. There might be some fatigue. Um, Some people are getting muscle aches and low-grade fevers in the five to seven days beforehand. 
And then, uh, especially in the people who get crit like more critically ill, we're seeing that around day five to seven, they actually will start to develop more of a full fever, and then they develop that dry cough. And within a day or two, then we start to see shortness of breath. And if you develop severe shortness of breath, within a day or two, it, it often will rapidly progress to a pneumonia or a pneumonitis. So a pneumonitis being an inflammation in the lungs. And a lot of what we're seeing is that um, this is a lower respiratory infection. So uh, the virus is, is attaching in the respiratory tract. And, it, and when it gets pulled into the, bot, the cells, which I know we can talk about how that all works, but um, we, we have cellular damage and we see inflammation, we see fluid buildup, and we even see uh, sloughing off of the lining of, of the sort of the airway into the lower parts of our lung. And a lot of people may have heard about the alveoli. These are just, you know, they're very often described as like a sack of grapes. And they're at the, all the very far ends of our airways, and this is where oxygen exchange is happening. And so the problem is we're starting to get all this debris because of the viral infection that's blocking oxygen exchange. But then we also have, because of that, uh, we also have the possibility of a secondary bacterial infection on top of the COVID-19 symptoms. So that's kind of like the basics of how that all works. And for the most part, it is mild. Like for the most part, mm -hmm. the virus is going to sort of run its course and resolve on its own. But in, um, you know, populations like, you know, diabetics, where we see obesity, where we see hypertension, where we already see this underlay of a pro-inflammed, like a pro-inflamed state. Mm -hmm. These are the people that we're talking about where we are much more concerned around this you know, uncontrolled inflammation, right? So what you're like the accumulation of fluid in the lungs, as you were just recounting mm -hmm. the, you know, the damage to the membrane where the, uh, where the gas is exchanged. So that yeah. uh, alveolar capillary bar uh, barrier. And then that is what that ends up leading to. Um, and I'm just sort of paraphrasing and wrapping up what you were saying is now your body's ability to get oxygen to your to the rest of your body, so the, to the rest of your tissues and your mm -hmm. organs is going to be attenuated, is going to be lowered. Um, let's talk a little bit about the uh, immune response. So I wanted to touch on, actually, maybe before we do that, let's talk about the how it gains access to the cell. And we've talked about this briefly on another episode that we did around the ACE2 okay. uh, receptor and ARBs. So let's, let's talk about first how the virus gains access to the cell. Mm -hmm. And then let's talk about the inflammatory response that can ensue, that, that pneumonia that you were talking about and the increased, like sort of this, you know, uh, Armageddon of inflammation. Yeah, the cytokine storm that we're all talking about and yeah. stuff. Well, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's good to start with, you know, what the coronavirus is. And, you, you know, it, it is this um, RNA virus, which, you know, is helpful to know scientifically. But if we've all seen those pictures with all the spikes on them, mm -hmm. and it's called an S spike. And... That's a really important piece because um, it's a, it, it is a part that is this ACE2 receptor, it essentially docks in there and it's looking to stick to it. And then when it's um, bound to this uh, ACE2 receptor, um, then it, the, essentially the, the spike itself will, is, is two pieces that then needs to be split. And once it's split, that sets off a cascade of events that allow the virus to be pulled into our cells. And so with the ACE2 receptors, it's found in tons of our cells, you know, uh, but primarily we're seeing it in the respiratory uh, cells that line the airways, 
kidneys and blood vessels. I also saw an interesting study where they, they found that it was actually in the, in the mouth. Mm. Um, so in the oral mucosa, so the lining mm. of the mouth and potentially um, even the nose. So we, this is spread through respiratory droplets. So if we inhale or place um, infected fluids into our mouth or, um, you know, it then docks, you know, in these areas. And one of the other things that um, make it really, um, you know, sort of one of the questions that comes up is with why is it so much more virulent and, and deadly and spreading rapidly than say influenza yes. or even the original SARS virus. Yeah. And one of the big differences between the original SARS or SARS classic as it's being called in this SARS-CoV-2 is that the bond between those two sides of that spike is much more easily broken. And this thing called furin is in all of our cells, especially highly concentrated in the same cells and the respiratory tree. And so it really just breaks it open mm. very easily. So it, can, it doesn't really have to have a lot of um, help from the body to start infecting it. So that's really sort of a, a key piece is it's just, it's really designed and, and it's come out of, uh, it's come back into the system in a way that's just ready to infect humans pretty easily. Yeah, that's great. And, that, and that's possibly why, you know, when we look at SARS-CoV or the original SARS virus, mm -hmm. it only infected, I think, around 8,000 people the first time around in, in 2003. And this, you know, I checked this morning before our podcast, it's like 230,000 people. 34,000, yeah. Yeah. So it, it, and, and, and in a third of the time, right. So in, in, you know, in, in, a, in a matter of three months, we have this global, you know, it's in every single country now mm -hmm. where SARS, I think the, um, I may get my data mixed up here, but it was primarily in Canada where, um, where I live. And then it was, I think right. it was born out. Of, I think it came from China as well. It was the right. same, uh, same country of origin. So let's talk about, and you and I are part of a lot of uh, online groups, and there's been a lot of discussion around cytokine storms and what causes mm -hmm. a cytokine storm and what supplements to stay away from and what is a cytokine storm. And, you know, and the, the one big thing I know that uh, uh, has been in a discussion with all of the functional medicine uh, providers in, in groups that we're both a part of is this idea of elderberry. So mm -hmm. does elderberry cause a cytokine storm? And there's a, all this misinformation, um, I think, that's being propagated online. So can we talk about what a cytokine storm is, and then maybe we can start moving into some treatment, um, whether that's you know medication or natural means or what you're seeing and what you're recommending as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, so the cytokine storm is sort of a, a catch-all phrase where people are described. You know, cytokines are an inflammatory response; they're part of the natural healing process in, that allows our body to protect itself, but a lot of times it gets out of control and it's sort of, I think you used the word Armageddon earlier and that's really, you know, mm -hmm. it's, and we can't really predict who are at this point, who are the people who are going to get it or not. I mean, certainly um, the more severely ill people, we start to worry about it. Um, and it's really this out of control inflammatory response that just is, becomes a feed forward loop. We get, you know, it gets triggered. We have inflammation begets more inflammation and then everything gets out of control. And, what the doctors are seeing in the hospital is we, we can have things like a person who has a pneumonia and then all of a sudden they develop what we call acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS. And, you know, and that's a much more severe uh, situation. And then the other part is you can also then that goes to sepsis where basically um, because of the overwhelming inflammation, 
the previously sort of confined inf uh, infection can get into the blood and go throughout the body, leading to multiple organs, you know, being involved in failing. So, I mean, the cytokine storm is a thing where we really want, we, again, it would be great to know who's going to get it, but the bottom line is, um, you know, it, it is just this out of control type of thing. When you look at sort of like the elderberry conversation, I'll be, I'm interested in hearing what you have to say too, because like, mm -hmm. I'm just like, you know, the body is responds to a lot of our treatments really well in a normal state. The problem is elderberry may increase, you know, cytokine levels or whatever, but, or, and, and a lot of our other treatments may increase or decrease them. But what happens when you're in an ARDS or sepsis state in cytokine storm? And I haven't seen a lot of that. It's been really studied. Yeah. The only, you know, my only, I mean, my training of course is in, in uh, my classic training is as a chiropractor. And one of the things that I have been educated on as it pertains to RDS is one of the best things that you can do is to sleep on your stomach. So that's like the standard protocol. So someone has acute respiratory distress prone. syndrome and they put them prone and they will intubate them prone as well. And mm -hmm. I have been, you know, I've written articles on the benefits of sleeping on your stomach. And, you know, of course I get blowback from, you know, people who don't understand mechanics will just leave it there, but they'll, <laughs> right. they'll say, well, the best thing to do is to sleep on your back. And it's like, right. no, because all that's doing is putting your neck in flexion and you're not actually, the benefit of prone sleeping or the benefit of sleeping on your stomach is you're training your diaphragm to be able to depress against your own body weight. And it mm -hmm. increases capillary perfusion, it increases oxygenation, which is why somebody who has ARDS, that's why they put them prone, because it forces their diaphragm to work harder so that they mm -hmm. can have that expansion in the lower lobes of the lungs. So one of the things in terms of my best, like a best practice that anybody can be doing, I mean, any time, but particularly now is to be, if we're thinking about training our diaphragm and being able to improve our oxygen perfusion, whether or not you become infected would be to start sleeping on your stomach because that's what they do in the hospital. You are flipped over and you're, and you're intubated that way, right? If, they, if right. you need ventilation, that's what, that's what happens. Yeah, um, it, it's a remarkably effective too in, in someone who does need mechanical assistance to breathe. And mm -hmm. it's interesting as you're saying that, I'm thinking about if you think about some of the higher risk patient populations, I mean, we've all heard about the asthma and the pre-existing lung disease and mm -hmm. diabetes and, and, and all the heart disease stuff. But then we're seeing smoking, which now makes sense because smoking destroys the, the, those alveoli where we're doing that oxygen diffusion yeah. into our tissue. But then we have obesity is becoming a fairly big risk factor. And what we do see is that, you know, we call it atelectasis. So, which is basically a fancy way of saying the lower parts of the lungs are not filling up all the way. And we have compression of the lower lung tissue. So they're not oxygenating as well. And so with obesity, we're seeing that those lower lungs really aren't filling up. And, and maybe this is one of the other reasons, you know, they don't have the full lung capacity. Their diaphragm is actually pushing against a significant resistance that they may not be able to get out of the way. Whereas like prone, you're training, it's almost like going to the gym, you know, and you're, mm. and you're also creating extra pressure gradient. So that makes me just, you know, think, you know, this is one of the other reasons why we need to start. If we're well now, we want to start working on, you know, slowly reducing our weight, stopping our smoking and all those other things. And also when we talk about breathing and we talk about breathing deep, uh, you know, a lot of yogic practices and stuff talk about, uh, depress, you know, a full abdominal breath, 
breathing to your pelvic floor so you can feel your pelvic floor pushing into the chair. A lot of that is so that you, you're training your diaphragm to get that full expansion because really it's the negative pressure created by the diaphragm going down that's really allowing the oxygen to come into our lungs. And it's also in our, in our chest and our abdomen, you know, we have one of the primary ways we move our lymphatic tissue to, to really kick up the immune function and remove toxins is through changes in pressure gradient. And we really need to be breathing properly and pressurizing our abdomen and then depressurizing for all of this to be moving. Same thing with the heart and the lungs. So I love what you're saying because I find even, even, you know, whether you are obese or overweight or not, I find that, and this is particularly true for women, I find that we are very shallow breathers. We tend to mm-hmm. just just take the breath from the upper uh, the upper lobes of the lung. And even when I was in clinical practice and I would be teaching people, you know, how we can activate our parasympathetic. So we talk about, I call it vagus nerve breathing. There's, mm-hmm. you know, where you are inhaling, you know, you're exhaling twice as long as you're inhaling. And there's multiple, there's multiple uh, iterations of breath work that can, that can activate the vagus nerve. But when I would ask people to take a breath before teaching them that technique, it would only, you would only see the chest rising. And I think, yeah. you know, maybe it's a cultural thing where I think women are, sort of taught to hold everything in and like they, they're not taught to soften the belly and to mm. allow for that belly expansion. But literally I'll have people put their hands on their belly, lie supine, so lying on their back and inhale for, let's call it two counts. But then you want to see the belly lifting, like you want to see your hands lifting. And yeah. then as you're exhaling, you also want to see the, the belly deflating and coming back down. But I think, and maybe you can this is just a clinical observation that I have with women. We don't want to let that happen. We want to just keep it all tight and we want to hold the belly in. But this is actually how one of the ways to your point where we can depress the diaphragm and allow for that pressure gradient so that we can have that rush of air into the lower lobes of the lung. And then you can have that gas exchange at the alveolar, at the um, alveolar level. Yeah. I mean, and I don't know if it's a, if it is a kind of a trying to keep the waist tucked and, and, or whatever, but you know, if you want your waistline to be trim, you can, that's through diet and exercise. If you want sure. your immune system to function well, breathe deeply into your belly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? And that's a really I mean, big focus right now is everyone's like, okay, I, like I know maybe I feel more vulnerable, maybe I'm overweight or, you know, whatever. So what are some things that I can be doing? And this is probably one of the best things is actually training your respiratory system to be stronger through that diet, like through prone sleeping or just belly breathing. You can always just lie in your stomach and do this for a couple of minutes a day. Oh yeah. Um, and it's I love critical. what you're saying. I love what you're saying around this idea of losing a little bit of weight. And this is sort of the question that's coming up for me philosophically, because I have been, I, I wrote this sort of stream of consciousness blog post. I haven't posted it anywhere. It's just for my, I, I may just post it. Um, I might put it in some of our groups, but you know, I'm very, on the one hand, very analytical. I'm very, I want to understand the mechanism. Tell me about the ACE2 receptor. Tell me about, and tell me about ARBs. Tell me about the furin site. Tell me about all those things. And then on the other, so, you know, really talking about the germ, but then on the flip side of that, I want to talk about the host. I want to talk about the health and well-being of the host because, or the, and when I say host, I mean, you know, if you are, you know, (laughs) like if if you are infected with the virus, you are the host and the virus is the, is the invading pathogen. So how can we be thinking about 
being the worst possible host? How can we think about, you know, being more resilient, both from a mental level, like the mental resilience that I think is going to be a big problem. Like, you know, people are isolated now. People are not, you know, not with people that they see every day. They're in their homes by themselves. Like I foresee a massive mental health issue in the next coming uh, weeks or months, but also from a cellular level, how can we have grit on a cellular level so that if we are infected with this, we have the reserves to be able to uh, keep it, at, you know, kind of get through it on the other side and then begin and then continue to, to work on our health markers. You, you know, it's interesting as, as I was trying to explain how this stupid virus works, I'm just like, <laughs> the, and I want to get all nerdy about it. And I keep, and I, I found myself kind of even getting a little stuck in my head because it's really important to understand. And I have a lot of patients who have like autoimmune encephalitis, like little kids with pans and pandas. So they're using ibuprofen all the time. And then there's this question about the ACE, you know, and and so we know that the literature is all over the place and high ACE two levels may be protective and they may not be. Mm. But I always go back to what is the actionable steps that we can take? Because if you look at what's going on in Italy, I mean, they were kind of like this one of the first couple places outside of China to get really hit hard. So they didn't really have a lot to go by. Mm -hmm. But what we're seeing is the population who's has, there's a lot of people who smoke, like tons of people who smoke. We see they have the second oldest population in the world and they have this super high mortality rate. But when you look at the mortality rate, almost half of it is in people that have three or more illnesses already. So if you have pre-existing medical conditions, you are a host for this virus that's very susceptible. It's a wonderful place to grow. And I mean, that's unfortunate. I feel terrible for, you know, especially since the vast majority of people who are dying are in their 70s and 80s. And Mm -hmm. um, my heart goes out to them and their families and everyone who's affected by this. But what we know is that the mortality rate in people who have no pre-existing illnesses pretty much across the globe is less than 1%. Mm -hmm. And so this goes to what you're saying is we can take action today to improve things. And, you know, there's some studies that were just done um, on meditation and EFT showing in seven days, you can essentially double your salivary levels of IgA, one of these immunoglobulins that's an antibody that can help our immune system fight off infections. And it's just a simple way That reminds us because there's study after study showing that if you sleep, you know, enough, which is is a big topic because most people don't sleep enough, Mm -hmm. your immune system works better. If you breathe or do some sort of contemplative thing, whether it be writing um, like your stream of consciousness blog, whether Mm -hmm. you like art, whether you like yoga, prayer, whatever it is for you, we can usually go and find a study of that or something very similar to it that shows your immune system works better and your parasympathetic nervous system is more chill. And the parasympathetic with all the vagus breathing and stuff you talked about and stimulating the vagus nerve is so critical, sort of, it's the opposite of cytokine storm. I mean, the cytokine storm is, is essentially um, fight or flight protective mechanism gone ballistic and gone berserk. Whereas we do the breathing, we do proper sleep, and we do other things to bring down the tone of the parasympathetics and chill out the vagus nerve then we see immune function is lifted. We become a host that's not really all that 
um, it, we're not a good host for the virus. So I think there are amazing things to be talking about. And the, the, it's funny because I'm like, I tell people to get a lot of sleep, you know, and if you're an adult, eight to nine hours of sleep, you know, eat your veggies, get your diet dialed in right now, go out and get fresh air, some sunshine and chill out. But the number one thing I can tell people to do is to pick one of those things and start it today. Yeah. Because if you start it today in a week, you'll have done it for a week. And other that, rather than talking about six things, pick one and do it. I love that because it's, it's often, it's the cumulative effect of things that actually propagates mm-hmm. change, right? It's not the one night that you slept for eight hours, but it's the, it's the, <laughs> you know, the 10 days that you slept for eight hours or the 10 years that you slept for eight hours. It's the cumulative effect of those things. And we mm-hmm. often, you know, I, I say this in a, um, you know, in the same way that we think about exercise, like what, which, which one workout was the one that got you fit? It wasn't one of them. It was the cumulative effect and the consistency and the application yes. of those things over time that led to some of the metabolic and the immunological and, you know, mental health gains and all the things that, that exercise can impart. So I just, just love what right. you're saying. And I, and I think and- that this is, you know, when we, I, I'm a bit of a word nerd. So I was looking at, um, the Chinese word for um, uh, crisis. So it's two symbols and mm-hmm. the first symbol means danger. So, you know, when, when there's a crisis like this, and of course, you know, ironically, it's the Chinese word that I'm looking at because it's, you know, the Chinese or the virus originated in, in China. So we're looking at danger, but the second part of that word means opportunity for change, or maybe not opportunity, but time, a time for change. Yes. So I think that this is in the, in, in the intermediate term, we, you know, touched on things like social distancing and, you know, there's other practices like hand washing and, you know, uh, disinfecting things as they come into the home, which we've talked about on the podcast, but the intermediate to long-term question, like this is an opportunity for a new beginning and a, um, uh, a new awareness of, you yes. know, health is not wealth. It's, it's everything. You know, if you, if you don't have your health, you have nothing. Yeah. And you know, it, it's interesting to me when I look at social distancing, um, I, I, I'm very careful with my words too. And I would much prefer to call it physical distancing. Yes. Be- right. Because yes. it's interesting for me because I'm actually more socially active right now than I was before, because it was kind of like I would work with my patients in the office. I would do a little social media. Mm-hmm. I would come home. I have a home gym. I hang out with my family. I go to bed and then I get up and do that. And then we go skiing a lot in the winter, but it's like, that's not, I mean, you know, I hang out with friends once in a while, but it's usually just like kind of me and my Zen place. Mm -hmm. And then we have lunch together. Whereas with this, because we've had to physically distance ourselves, not only to protect ourselves, but even more importantly, to help other people, because we do have asymptomatic spread. And uh, we know that the virus can shed before you become symptomatic. it's we're actually seeing that we are as a globe coming together um, a large amount of us to actually we're physically being distanced to protect others so it's almost like a selfless act Mm -hmm. and we've all gone online and really gotten totally engaged so it's in a weird way COVID-19 is challenging us to make those changes and again like a lot of the studies show and like like you just said in terms of exercise it's the cumulative effect of what we do, which goes both ways. So you have to make a long-term commitment to something, 
But also if you fall off for a day or two, you don't need to beat yourself up because it's you're really the lifestyle of health. And if we use this as a time of change, we can, we, we're going to get past this, right? I mean, unless the whole world ends, which is not likely to happen, <laughs> you know, we're going to get through all this. And where are we going to be when we're done? You know, take advantage of this time to really put everything in a row and make that change you've been looking to make for a really long time. That's great. I love that. So let's talk a little bit about uh, treatments. And this can be a little bit of the wild, wild west right now because Mm -hmm. we are seeing things like, you know, in the... um, uh, in the allopathic world, we're seeing, you know, anti-malarials, which I'd like to touch on. Uh, and then in the sort of natural health world, or, you know, I'm using my hands right now, air, air quotes, you know, the alternative world, we're seeing things like melatonin and ascorbic acid and other things that can upregulate um, uh, the ACE2, or pardon, pardon me, uh, downregulate the ACE2 receptor. So, um, or have angiotensin receptor blocking like effects. Right. So can we touch on some of the things that uh, that have worked in China? And I've also uh, actually was reading uh, that they're using some of the traditional Chinese medicine herbs in China as well, which is potentially why we're seeing the death rate in China. I mean, Drop. there's more people that have died in Italy at this point uh, than in China. I think there was right? 4,000 deaths in, or 4,000 something in Italy and 3,000 in, in China. So let's talk yeah. about some uh, treatments that are being explored at this time, um, both from the allopathic and the alternative uh, health models. Yeah, you know, I, I was really happy. I saw that um, there, there's over 80 clinical trials being done across the globe now, uh, inclu- and they, they, they included all these traditional Chinese medicine herbs, and they're doing studies with these natural substances. And, and I'm really happy to see that because in the beginning, there was a lot of sort of, then there still is a lot of censorship of some of these natural treatments like IV vitamin C and stuff. Yeah. Um, and it's a very concerted public effort by the WHO and some of the large internet companies. Um, and I do think that we have to be careful to, to be honest about the facts, right? Um, and the people who are just like making ridiculous claims, like 100% cure of something that's not been studied. That's a different story, but um, I hope we get more and more evidence coming out that allows us to have a real discussion about what's working. So I know that there's a whole bunch of different um, allopathic medicines, if you will, that have been looked at. And one of the biggest ones is called, called remdesivir. And it's an antiviral that was originally looked at in Ebola. Um, and it's an antiviral that basically inhibits viral replication um, it works through kind of messing with the RNA polymerase, uh, and, and it also evades proofreading by the virus. So it, it, in the end, it basically decreases viral uh, RNA production, so we have less virus. Mm-hmm. But um, what's interesting is uh, because they were looking at it in Ebola and it didn't really work, then they started to look at the SARS uh, classic and the, the MERS viruses in vitro, and it looked like it was helpful. So especially on the West Coast, when we started to have, you know, the whole thing in Washington State and Seattle, and then in California, the early people who were in critical condition got a compassionate use exemption from the FDA, and we were able to give it to them intravenously. And there are some cases where people in one to two doses were seeing dramatic improvements in their symptoms. Now, the problem with 
you know, reporting on a couple of people is that that may not be what we can do for the whole population. And also it's only available IV. So I know they're studying that some more, uh, quite a bit actually. And then there's also been work with chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, which are the antimalarials we talked about. And um, what's really interesting is I got started in using a lot of these because um, if you're using like for um, Lyme disease or some other persistent infections, um, drugs that work inside of cells, we often will find that the cells become very acidic. And so to improve the efficacy of the antibiotic, a lot of times we need to combine it with one of these drugs because the way they work primarily is by increasing the pH of the cell. So it becomes a more alkaline environment, in, and that seems to have led um, to the, they basically inhibit the fusion of the virus to the cell membrane. So this whole S spike docking on the ACE2 seems to be uh, inhibited by the use of both of these drugs. Um, they also have direct, especially the hydroxychloroquine, which a lot of people might know as Plaquenil, um, has uh, direct antiviral effects. And it's also used as what we call a DMARD, so a disease-modifying anti-rheumatologic drug. And we use it in a lot of rheumatologic conditions, um, you know, some people with lupus and rheumatoid arthritis or some of them. And it's used to modulate the immune system and specifically the inflammation caused by these autoimmune conditions. So one of the things with the hydroxychloroquine is it may actually inhibit the development of cytokine storm. So the other part is a lot of people are actually um, combining that with, um, you know, other drugs like azithromycin for these secondary bacterial infections. And we're Mm -hmm. seeing that um, some early chat out of places like Italy and France are showing sometimes when we combine some of these more antiviral and immune modulatory drugs with um, a macrolide antibiotic like an azithromycin, we're actually seeing that it's augmenting the antiviral effects as well as you know, putting you know, knocking out any secondary bacterial infection. It's probably too early to say that that's actually happening, um, because I know that like the whole ACE two thing got going after the Lancet article, and then like one of the ministers of health just really overread it. Mm-hmm. Um, but so hydroxychloroquine too is a little bit safer than the chloroquine, and it's easier for people to tolerate. Um, so the, the initial studies on that are promising, and they're also looking at it as a preventative also. So um, that's a good one. And then there's also um, some biologics um, that are you know, used in, as disease-modifying drugs in, in rheumatologic conditions as well. Um, there's uh, Kevzera and Actemera, or Actemra. <laughs> The names are, are, are always so crazy. But <laughs> they're always, basic- I never want to say things out loud because I'm like, I'm totally putting the accent on the wrong part of the word. I hate it. Yeah. I know, right? And, but these are like, I mean, these are the, the brand names that I can't even say them. So, I mean, I have the generic names on my screen right here. I'm like, I'm not even going there. Um, you know, I know they, they all end in MAB. You know, yeah. it's like yeah. MAB. So you're good there. But, but basically, um, you know, they are directed at this interleukin-6 receptor and you know we know from the SARS classic virus, it directly stimulated production of interleukin-6, which is one of these pro-inflammatory cytokines. Yeah. And it leads to a tremendous amount of inflammation, you know, kind of going back to the maybe one of the things that trips cytokine storm. And so they have been doing some reports, you know, they have been using this, especially in China, 
um, to see if we could, you know, kind of decrease what's, you know, some of the cytokine storm and then the overall morbidity and mortality of this. Um, you know, and the preliminary reports are kind of like scattered, but they do look like they decrease the need for supplemental oxygen. And in some patients, they rapidly um, reduce their fever. So, you know, they're, again, they're, they're being studied. And I guess the other big one is uh, Coletra, which is a combination of two HIV drugs. Um, uh, the, yeah, I shouldn't even try it. <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> you can yeah, and so, yeah, exactly. Um, so the Coletra is a protease inhibitor, which prevents viral replication um, by blocking enzymes that the virus needs to replicate. And so with this, it's, they use it in combination with the second um, drug, and the Kletra is the combination of these two, because the other one actually makes this one work better. So it's a, it's a nice kind of combo product, but they're basically looking to reduce the viral RNA load um, and also the duration of how long you can detect it for. Mm -hmm. um, but that really didn't pan out in some of the original studies. That's kind of what they're looking for. But what they said was, despite it overall didn't really make a big difference, um, they did see less serious complications. So one of the big problems when we do get, you know, a severe pneumonia, we might develop the ARDS, or we hit like that cytokine storm type of thing, is we can have acute kidney damage. Yeah. Um, we can My certainly have the second. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so they're basically seeing there were less um, significant side effects and patients required less mechanical ventilation. Um, now, small studies have to be reproduced, but they're kind of the big groups of medicines that are being looked at right now. Yeah, and that's really when, we, when we're looking at the data that's coming out of, uh, so far I've seen most of the data coming out of China. I haven't seen a lot of uh, Italian data as of, as of late or as of yet, but that's what we have to go on. And this is why I was saying it's a bit of the wild, wild west. Yes. And sometimes even in the... You know, I saw somebody post something online and I had to just hold my, hold my tongue because it was like the silver, pro the, what was it? Silver colloidal or something. I colloidal silver. Yep. I colloidal heard silver. And he's like, this has like been shown to treat the coronavirus. And it's like, sit down, stop talking <laughs> because there's nothing that has been shown to prevent or treat the coronavirus like, like something like colloidal. So it's right. You know, there's a bit of like buyer beware and also people are just freaking out. And I think that there's a lot of, um, you had mentioned it, but there's a lot of disingenuous claims um, yes. online. So with that, and of course, this is a disclaimer, like there is no supplement that has been shown to prevent or treat uh, Corona. But what we're talking about is general immune uh, boosting activities. There yes. has been some discussion uh, however preliminary around ascorbic acid or vitamin C um, and uh, as a, you know, uh, its ability to boost immune function and um, potentially reversing some of the, you know, the inflammatory response in the lung and the accumulation of immune cells in the lung, you know, the cytokine storm that, that you were referring to yeah, and yeah. slowing down the re reproduction and, and spread of the virus in the body. So can we talk about potentially uh, vitamin C? Uh, there's been some other um, things like melatonin uh, as, a, mm -hmm. as a proposed um, uh, supplement and potentially an explanation for why children are not uh, as affected as the adult population. 
Uh, and that just, at, at this point, I just think that's a theory. Um, but can you speak right. to some of the alternative uh, supplements that people may be taking just for general immunity, but um, mm -hmm. maybe what we're seeing in the literature as it emerges, understanding that there's no RCTs here, there's no really good big right. clinical trials, the N is really low. Um, yeah. Well, and you know, I, I think the the disclaimer also should include all the stuff we talked about, the meds, the those yeah. the N's in those, the number of people who are tested are low. Yeah. And we saw one day earlier this week, chloroquine, the best thing ever. The next day, a new study showing that hydroxychloroquine is probably way, way better and it could potentially be prophylactic. So oh, it's the ibuprofen all conversation too. Like we should also include the ibuprofen there because it's like it's either the miracle drug or it's the thing that's going to, you know, account for right. your demise, right? Yeah, and I definitely think we should talk about that because that's um, the people that I treat, ibuprofen is a huge uh, thing that they use. Um, you know, and, and well, I, with the ibuprofen, it's really interesting in, in, I have a group of people who have, uh, you know, pandas or pans, you know, the pediatric acute onset neuropsychiatric syndrome, which is mm -hmm. essentially an infection induced autoimmune encephalitis. But this is a hyperimmune response, uh, kind of akin to cytokine storm in a non-deadly way. Yeah. Um, but what we have found is that often weight-based ibuprofen around the clock when the patient's awake, when they're in a flare, can really modulate their immune function and bring down this flare. But then, you know, there's been a lot of work talking about the ACE2 and what, you know, ibuprofen will increase it, so you don't want to do it. But there's studies that, sh well, I shouldn't say tons. There's a couple of studies that show increasing ACE2 levels might not be that good, and then, but there are a couple of mouse studies and some human studies showing that increasing your ACE2 levels can actually decrease the severe things like the like getting sepsis or ARDS. Mm -hmm. And we found that there's a group of people with this um, PANS phenomena where ibuprofen snaps them right out of it, and other people where it doesn't seem to do much. And there's very few people where I've seen it do anything other than not work or work really well. I haven't seen it make it worse. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if I can extrapolate that to this, but it makes me also think of like, you know, like our autistic population, um, a lot of them, their immune system is hyper reactive to everything, you know, in general, but they tend not to get sick and they tend not to get fevers. And so a lot of our autistic kids and our, our kids with chronic infections, their parents are so happy when they get an infection, uh, a fever, because their immune function is more balanced, you know? Yes, yes. And so I'm always looking for the balance part because that's kind of the health thing. And I, and I think that if you look at the medical literature uh, right now with the ACE2 and, and really more the ACE inhibitor and the angiotensin receptor blocker medications used a lot for blood pressure issues, everybody across the globe says, don't stop these things right now. Yeah. We have not enough evidence. Yeah, yeah. So I think that the IBU, you know, and, and a quick aside on fever, because I think it goes back to our natural discussion. I'm a, f a big proponent that we don't treat fevers. When I was a resident in the hospital, oh. I'm like, this is mother nature treating you. Thank you. Your body is fighting off an infection. And so I was the only resident who refused to write standing orders for ibuprofen or Tylenol. Mm -hmm. So when I admitted a kid or an adult who, who I on admission did not need, um, you know, like I use these drugs when you have a fever to bring down your fever if you feel badly. 
But if you're asleep with a fever that's not at a dangerous level, I leave it because that's your body working well. So I would get woken up all the time by the nurse who just wanted to give, <laughs> to give this. Mm -hmm. But the bottom line is like we, I use ibuprofen um, and potentially Tylenol to help people feel more comfortable. And we're seeing that people are saying, oh, use more Tylenol. Well, the problem is Tylenol can damage your liver, which can also have, be a problem too. So um, anyway, just kind of a pet peeve no, about I'm fever. So, I'm so happy that you said that because when we think about fevers, that is an appropriate response. It's an appropriate internal response to an invading pathogen. So what the, your body's trying to do is it's trying to denature the protein or denature the, you know, the, the replicability of the, of the virus or to uh, you know, prevent it from gaining access to the cell by having a really high temperature. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's been, whether it's through marketing or our cultural assumptions around fevers, like, oh, she has a fever, we have to you know, take it down, we have to get rid of it. And there's right. been quite a few studies, and I can, I'd have to look them up, but I can put them in the show notes, um, around when you bring down, when you give an antipyretic, when you give something that's gonna bring the fever down, you actually prolong the disease because the, it, it allows the bacteria, all you're doing is just symptom management. Mm -hmm. What you're not allowing is you're not allowing the bacteria to die. You're not in you're that aggressive bacteria to, to, uh, to cease what it's doing or to cease its, rep its reproduction. And you actually prolong the disease, you prolong the sickness. Right. So it's, it's a really great idea to allow for a fever within reason, right? Like, you know, and everybody has their own sort of arbitrary cutoff for me you know, my kids um, have been sick where they've had 104 degrees and I'm like, okay, we're just going to put some hot, cool, you know, cool yeah, exactly. uh, towels on the, on the forehead and maybe some popsicles or something, but um, we're just going to let it run its course. Um, so I'm, I'm really thankful that, uh, that you've said that because people can and do freak out over fevers and it is a wonderful response by the body that is being it is squashed. you know and it's yeah. like we we forget about this and then like you know i i just thought of like there's this um there's this study in mice about an avian influenza very mm -hmm. similar to you know sars a uh, covid you know i should say sars cov viruses mm -hmm. not exactly the same but they actually found that ace 2 administration improves lung function and survival mm -hmm. rates and so I think that it just reminds me that when we have fevers and we have our body doing things that might increase certain levels, our body's pretty smart. Yeah. You know, and it's like, we have all these little studies. I, I feel like, um, I always tell people, I went to medical school to learn how we were ruining the body. And I just figured I'd get out and then figure out how to fix it. Mm -hmm. Cause I didn't know all about, you know, I didn't know all about chiropractic and naturopathy and integrative medicine. When I went to school, I just knew we were doing it wrong because when the body was trying to fix us, we said, let's stop this. We have a better idea. And I think what the, the real answer is and what we're seeing is probably with the, the whole COVID-19 discrepancy is that the bot, we should allow the body to do what it's doing and then support it where it needs help. So rather than say, let's turn the body off and we got it, we got it for you. We're doing better. Do it the other way. Let's find out what the body needs. And unfortunately, that means we have to do individualized care. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of those things out there that I think the natural immune supports really go in that area of supporting natural function. And so whenever I'm prescribing them, I look at it in two ways. One is how do I support the body in its own self-healing mechanism that it's already using? And then if we have an acute exposure where we're sick, where is the body stuck and where can I apply it, you know, in, in a, in a, you know, appropriate way. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and like one of the things that people have been studying, uh, or a guy actually up in Canada, I guess he's, he's like the sixth or seventh most referenced scientist in the world. He's, he's been on like over 600 peer-reviewed different journal articles. And ever since the original SARS outbreak in early 2000s, he's been studying quercetin in SARS and in the MERS outbreak. And he's like, guys, we got to look at quercetin. And as soon as this came out, like a couple days ago, you know, or last week, everybody like bought up all the quercetin. Right. But they're looking at that. And, and it sounds like he's coordinating with China to do some studies on quercetin. And again, it's a bioflavonoid. It's very natural, super safe. We use it in a lot of mast cell activation patients and other things. So, you know, that can bring down inflammation theoretically in in um, other coronaviruses. And it's been found in this guy's research to have broad spectrum antiviral properties. And so the quercetin is is definitely something people have been looking at as a natural substance. Um, yeah, and then like the melatonin is really interesting to me because I, I've been, you know, some of my friends who are pediatricians are saying, hey, the reason that we're not having the kids get so sick is their immune systems are stronger and they're less hyperreactive than sort of our older, used, you, know, you know, more used and run down, if you will, mm-hmm. immune systems. Mm-hmm. But the melatonin concept is a, is a pretty good one too because I, I tell people all the time, one of the things you can do at home is get your sleep. And when I talk about sleep, I'm like, okay, turn off your TVs and your screens a little bit earlier. If you have to leave them on in the evening as it gets darker, put your blue blockers on. You know, turn off your Wi-Fi so it's not as irritating when you go to sleep. But almost as important is get up in the morning and go outside and get sunshine. Because oh, that's when you get- where good sleep starts, man. Starts in the morning. I Boom. Agree. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so you, if you get up in the morning – the, the trigger for melatonin production is actually natural sunlight. So, you know, if you're in a dark, dreary place or you travel a lot, there's certainly little, you know, blue-green light things that you can use and light boxes. But the best thing is to go outside and, and get the sunshine naturally and the fresh air. And we know that from all the osteopathic work around the Spanish flu epidemic is that fresh air and gentle body movements dramatically improve their outcomes versus everybody else, like a tenfold decrease in more uh, mortality just by getting people to have fresh air and move. But the part about the sunshine, that's gonna trigger your brain to start creating melatonin throughout the day. And then the release of melatonin is, is triggered by dark. So all of us staying up late, you know, on all our, t- our TVs and our screens and everything with all that blue light, that's screwing up our melatonin release. But if we get the melatonin to release at the right time, not only do we get great sleep and that helps us heal, but we're also, melatonin is profoundly anti-inflammatory and, and a very strong antioxidant. So it's so good um, you know, for our health overall, and especially in one of these sort of situations. I love that. And I've been reading again, uh, very preliminary stuff, but talking about melatonin being able to inhibit uh, some of the inflammasomes that are precursors to, or uh, precursors to that cytokine storm. Uh, so mm-hmm. maybe if you can naturally, I mean, of course we can talk about dosages and stuff like that, but I think that if you can naturally do what you outlined here, so getting some sunshine in the morning and then it's, there's this funny, me- there's this funny meme. I'll see if I can find it for the show notes. It's something like, you know, you wonder why you have sleep problem. It's because you wear sunglasses during the day and then you're on your phone at night. You know, it's like, we've completely. <laughs> <laughs> so true. We've completely reversed the the signals coming into the 
suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is an area in the brain that that will help modulate uh, and and direct um, sort of our central clock, uh, central oscillator, if you will, that will help mm-hmm. modulate and coordinate the release of melatonin. But it is like you're saying, I love it. it's a hormone of darkness. So you know the the it starts with sunshine. <laughs> Which starts with sunshine. So funny, Um, but it is it is truly released. If you you can't just always be on or off. You can't just be like, okay, I'm on my phone, and okay, now it's time. I got to go to sleep. You know, you have to allow for these processes to sort of lay out, and it's a it's a much slower process than I think a lot of us would like. But that's what, and this is an opportunity again, since a lot of us are home, to really be doubling down on our on our hygiene, on our sleep hygiene. Well, and and do you work? I'm sure you work with people like I do who are like, oh, I got like an aura ring or, you know, or, 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 you know, one of the garments or whatever. And they're like, I fell asleep right away. Or they're like, I'm not even going to worry about that. I sleep great. My head hits the pillow and I'm out. I'm like, no, that's a big problem. (laughs) It's a huge problem. One of the most important things for us to do right now is to remain on, on a routine. Yeah. That's the biggest thing. I think our kids and even us, it's like if we're at home, oh, I can get up and, you know, you should be getting up and actually, you know, it's really cool, you know, to do your virtual work in your shorts or your pajamas on the bottom. You know, it's almost like the new mullet, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's like business on top and pajamas on the bottom. <laughs> So you're telling me right now that you're in your pajama shorts for this interview? Is that what no, you're no, no, totally not. Because what, <laughs> what I found, I did that the first couple of days, um, but now I'm like, you know, I'm like, no, you really got to get up and stay in your routine yes. and mm-hmm. not staying up late, get up, take your shower, you know, get your, get dressed and, you know, give yourself a little bit of freedom, but keeping on a routine is going to be so good for you and your kids mm-hmm. to re, you know, because it, the more we let our sleep clock get off, not only we're setting ourselves up for problems later, but we're going to screw, screw up our immune function. Now, you know, our bodies really want to sleep if you're an adult between 10 and 6 and some people more 11 to 7 mm-hmm. most of us who are outside of that have done it to ourselves accidentally you know so and with the kids i think one of the things is like we did make the mistake of letting our daughter talia stay up a little late the other night yeah but she went to bed around 11:30 which i'm so embarrassed to say because <laughs> it's totally inappropriate but she didn't there. get up until yeah. 11 the next day yeah. Whereas like Jill and I go to sleep if we, you know, I'm like, I'm up at six thirty, seven o'clock if I go to bed at 7, 11.30 because mm-hmm. I'm so used to getting up. So the kids really are getting a lot more deeper sleep. Their melatonin pattern, even if we shift a little, is so much higher that that might be one of the reasons that they are more protected from, from the virus. You know, I mean, in the U.S., we did have, you know, everybody's talking about the people who are over 70 and 80 and three or more medical conditions being at risk. But there's a new study out of the CDC or, you know, was highlighting about all the first cases of the U.S. that were U.S. not imported cases, but, you know, native U.S. Native to the U.S. And, yeah. yeah. And there are a lot of people who are in the sort of the the and 40s who are getting sick. Now, they're not dying at really high rates, but the rate of infection was dramatically higher than we had thought. You know, so we have to understand that, you know, the millennial population, everybody above 20 seems to be very at risk. And that's where we really need to think about keeping ourselves, you know, understanding that the physical social distancing is critical. It's not to be joked about anymore. Yeah. I wanted to maybe pick your brain on what you think the differences are. And I have some opinions, but how Taiwan, you know, country right next to China um, has dealt with this coronavirus and this outbreak 
versus other countries like, you know, we can look at many of the European countries. We can look at the U.S. now. I think we can start to look at Canada. And Canada this morning, I think, had over a thousand, there's over a thousand as of, as of at the t- time of this recording. Yeah. Uh, and I've been kind of watching on the John Hopkins. There's a coronavirus tracker that I sort of check once a day. And, you know, a couple of days ago, Canada had like 400 cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that are not, you know, that rate of spread is really, you know, people are not really taking the social distancing thing seriously. But I right. wanted to maybe just, you know, what you think the differences were uh, in terms of was it like the more draconian measures that were in place? Was it uh, was it testing? You know, I know there's a big yeah. question right now around like what is going on with the U.S. and the testing and like even just the quality of the test, like the specificity and the false negatives and all that. Right. Do you have any thoughts on that? Did you that you wanted to? Yeah, definitely. I'm actually I I feel like I'm like you. I'm very opinionated in the, on this, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is yeah. good. I mean, but um, you know. I'm just thinking back to last Friday in the United States, we had 1600 cases. Mm. And as of this morning, which is like nine days later, we have 19,775 confirmed cases. Yeah. Um, And, you know, it's spreading. And I mean, you know, I know we've had a lot of talk about the testing, but the testing in the United States is, I mean, I I just, I'll say it's pathetic. Mm. I mean, it really is. I mean, we tested something like a, as of um, the end of the day yesterday, 34,000 people total in 60 days. Wow. South Korea, on the other hand, tests 15 to 20,000 people in one day. And so when we look at what happened is, you know, originally it looked like somewhere in early-ish December in China, they started to see this weird sort of respiratory virus or respiratory illness come up. Yeah. And I've, I've seen different um, re- accounts and it's really hard because of the censorship coming out of China, but it sounds like no later than December 31st, they were able to confirm that this was a novel coronavirus. But then it was right around the time of the Japanese New Year, uh, Chinese New Year. And then they did all that. They let everybody come into the city, then everybody left. And then they go, oh my God, like on Dece- was it January 21st or something like that we need to lock down and they went super draconian and you know making people stay inside having all of these you know rules about when you can leave how, who in the house can leave how frequently what you can go get and you know but they needed to do that and if you look at the rate of new infections in china it's really i mean if if their data is accurate is completely under control. It's much, much, I mean, almost no cases. I think there was a day where they had zero or one cases, and then they have a few mm-hmm. blips. But the reason they had to do all that was because they didn't act early. And so if you, and, and this is what we're seeing in the United States. I mean, you know, it, it's unfortunate, but the leadership of our country is, is, is all over the place with this. But most of the time telling us the media is blowing it out, out of proportion. And I'm like, all of the major um, medical societies, all of the advisors are saying this is a whole, this is a terrible epidemic. Mm-hmm. We know that this virus is so much more lethal and easily infects people than these other viruses, than influenza, than the previous coronaviruses, and they've just kind of blew it off. Um, contra- and 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 our testing, we said everybody who needed testing could get it, and I mean that's not really accurate. You know, I mean. Our numbers are somewhere, you know, around 75 people, 80 people per million in the United States population get tested. 
versus about 5,000 people per million uh, inhabitants of South Korea. So it's, it's just dramatically we're behind. And that's what we see in Italy. You know, it kind of got out of control before they really knew what to do. And even though they're saying, hey, let's do some social distancing, you know, some of the people in the government were, they were all going out for drinks like everybody did after work in the bar posting on social media, like, be careful, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> yeah. Contrast yeah, the UK, that. The UK is doing the same thing. Like the UK at this point has not closed their school system uh, there's like some recommendation around social, social distancing. I'd say the same is true for Canada as well. Like we're, you know, the recommendation is not to travel. I know that the borders are closed now, like non-essential right. travel. You can't go back and forth, but. Wasn't England know. trying to do the herd immunity thing? I, I think so. I think that that's what the, I think that's what the play is. So they're either brilliant or, <laughs> or, or not. Well, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I'm going to go with, I'm going to make a prediction that that's not really brilliant, but yeah. it, it, but again, I don't know the answer to that. It's just, you know, the thing is, it's like the idea of the herd immunity is we get large enough number of people infected and recovering and, you know, so that there's essentially um, the prevalence of the virus gets super duper low, but estimates have shown that if for that to work, we probably would need to have 50 to 60% of the entire global population infected. And the problem with it is it's a high risk strategy because we could have, it could be associated with a high n number of deaths. Mortality, right? I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and if you can, if you contrast that to what Taiwan did is, you know, they're like really close neighbors to China. And when they heard all of this was going on, they started to act really quickly and really make some changes. And they started talking about, um, you know, doing screening for people, having testing available, and doing what, you know, contact tracing. So essentially, like if one person, and this is one of the biggest problems, one person's got the virus, they can spread it to five, 10, maybe 20 people, whatever that they come in contact with. So when you had a confirmed case, because they had early testing available, they had a positive, they could go and say, who are you hanging out with, and then quarantine those people. And this is what you saw in South Korea. They got out of control, but then they got a lot of testing. And as soon as they started testing and doing contact tracing, they would isolate and, and like confine, um, quarantine the right people, mm -hmm. not everybody. Yeah. And, and, in, and in places like Singapore and Taiwan, they did that early testing, the early contact tracing, and they instituted early social distancing and they didn't make it a game. They made it very serious. And so they have very few cases, almost no deaths. I mean, it's quite remarkable. And one of the things that I found in, in looking at what went on in Taiwan, though, that's, I think, really important is there's a lot of public tran transparency and engagement. So they were letting the public know the truth as best they knew, and they were also very transparent about what was going on. And then they did these really cool things. They have like apps that help track it better. They really put a lot of resources into this. Um, but then they started saying, whoa, you know, everybody, there's a run on masks. Okay, there's no more export of surgical masks. Mm -hmm. Now, companies who make surgical masks, we're going to ask you, we're going to support you in making more. So every, across the board, every place where they could have been proactive, they were. And I mean, I think it was, it was yeah, one or like a handful of deaths at most and, and not many cases. So that's what we should have been doing, I think, in the United States is take it serious hit it hard in the beginning so you know so that this could be contained yeah and so i, I think now the 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 conversation has moved from containment because we can no longer contain it no. 
uh, to just mitigating it. And that's why these social distancing, hand washing things are important. I think that the question that a lot of people are starting to ask now is like, okay, how long is how long do we social distance for? How long is this going to last? And when we look at China, it looks like it, everything seems to be on the downturn now. So that exponential rate of growth now has inverted. Um, mm -hmm. But it looks like start to finish, it's something like three months um, right. for it to run its course. But like, don't mark my words on that because I have no idea. You know, the... Right. the um, but, but I think that the the officials, the government officials really do have to become like there should not be there should not be just a suggestion. I mean, we look at Florida right now and people are there on spring break and, you know, kind of partying and, you know, have their parents credit cards. And it's like, guys, here we you know, go. I know you're young, but, you know, you know, the thing, too, is like I remember uh, a week and a half ago, I, I got asked by a, a reporter down in Manhattan. She's like my kids go to school in New York city, you know, like eight and 10. We all live here. I work here, run the subway every day. You know, they're in school. This is right before New York really blew up as a, yeah. as an epicenter in the States. And yeah. she's like, my parents are in Florida and they're 80 and they both have diabetes. Should I go visit them this weekend? And this was before, I mean, this is still when the U S had like, a, you know, like 800 or 900 cases. Yeah. And I was like, no, absolutely not. Because our kids are healthy but we have evidence that the the you know the novel coronavirus we have asymptomatic spread so younger healthier people can have little to no symptoms and be shedding the virus and making other people more sick so you could accidentally especially now with the social distancing all my patients are calling up hey you know my parents live around the corner the kids are chomping at the bit can we go visit them or can they come over i'm like uh-uh no mm -hmm. way yeah, yeah you could accidentally kill your parents by letting them hang out with your children mm -hmm. you know and that's where you know I, I don't know that the evidence that came out of the cdc recently is sombering enough to get people to stop partying on you know on uh spring break or whatever but they need to take their own health into their hands and also understand that they could be Trojan horsing somebody else and they really need to, um, I mean, this is personal responsibility for yourself as well as your global community. Yeah, yeah, it's a civic responsibility at this point, I agree. And when we think yeah. about New York, I mean, you think about vectors of transmission, for sure your kids can be a vector of transmission, but we know now that there's some reports that the virus is incredibly robust in its ability to live on inert surfaces. So things like cardboard and, you know, you think about elevator, but like metal, it's able to live on metal for, you know, I don't know what the number three is. Three or four days. Four and 72 hours. Is it, what did you say? Yeah, three okay. and four days. I'd originally yeah. heard it was up as words of nine hours, or I mean, nine days. Yeah. But then then the, the study, the best one that came out shows, um, you know, uh, four hours on copper, 24 hours up to 24 hours on cardboard think about all the things you're having delivered to your Amazon house right Prime. now yeah uh-huh yeah. and yeah. then three to four days um you know uh, potential on on hard plastics and metals so it's yeah. interesting and you know it, it just it reminds me in the beginning i was doing my top three tips to avoid getting the coronavirus which were you know um basically to um social distance um, if you cough, you know, cough, or, or I should say wash your hands properly mm -hmm. um, and what 20 seconds of hand washing really was. And the other one was contact, watch, you know, we have this fancy word in, in medicine called fomites, right? Which are different things, you know, like the elevator button or a pen 
or an Amazon Prime box that someone has coughed onto or sneezed onto that now can transmit the virus to you. And I was saying, at your house, you need to wash down high contact um, surfaces, especially metals and plastics, at least once a day. But then we looked at it and we were like, all right, well, now if you're in a doctor's office or a restaurant or even in a subway, that stuff needs to be wiped down way more frequently. Yeah. Um, you know, and it took, I mean, weeks to a month and a half or so for the airlines to be told by the CDC to, to disinfect all the seats and the tables. Like, why did it take so long to tell you to practice good hygiene? Mm -hmm. But it's so important right now to do that. And one of the other things are, this is a virus is primarily a, a lower respiratory thing with a little bit of upper respiratory symptoms, but lots of, not so much of the nasal uh, congestion things that you might see with the flu or some other common colds. But we are also seeing that urine and feces could potentially transmit this. Yes. So... And diarrhea has a different uh, pH, and so it can actually last a little bit longer in a loose stool um, than sort of a more normal stool. And so it's not to tell people to freak, but it's just at home, if someone does have another illness, make sure you're wiping off the toilets, you know, wipe off the door handles and the doorknobs and your kitchen counters. I mean, you know, it's just little things. It's basically, we need to be a little bit more clean. We need to be, you know, and it's so funny. All the people are supposed to be coughing in your elbow, mm -hmm. you know, so you don't give it to other people. And so many people I'm talking to, they're like coughing into their hands. They're wiping right. it all over. And then you see over. them with their hand, when, when they start touching their face after, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but That's yeah, actually one of the harder things because I, I have that habit too. I tend to, you know, rest my chin on my, I tend to. You know, right. I tend to touch my face a lot as well. So that's been something that I've been trying to be more conscious well, of. As well. I did an Instagram post, I think, they, and Facebook where I actually, you know, there's Elizabethan collars for your dog. Mm -hmm. Yes. Where I actually put it on to stop because it's like, <laughs> you know, it is, it's really hard, you know, yeah, and I'm a yeah. face toucher, but yeah. it's okay to touch your face, but it just wash your hands more frequently and make sure, you know, and minimize it, mm -hmm. you know, just little habits that we can break. And I'm sure that, you know, it'd be better to not be playing with our face all day, even if there was no coronavirus going around. Sure. Um, yeah. You have been such a wealth of information, Doc. I just wanted to thank you so much for your time. Uh, I always, whenever I get to uh, the chance to talk to you, I always have a great time, but this has been so informative and we will, uh, I'm going to try to get this out uh, in the next couple of days uh, for my audience, but thank you for doing this on such short notice. I really appreciate oh, your brilliance and, and your time. Yeah, anytime. This is so fun. And thanks so much for doing something so important. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic Carpet Ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. And now for the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship formed. 
and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. This episode is brought to you by yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Asima and Leverage. Leverage handles all production, creates the images that you see on my social media, and takes out all my awkward pauses. They are my secret magic bullet. You can visit them at getleverage.com forward slash better.